<laughs> How was that? Yeah, so we've had a fantastic time just having you here just for first service. Now you get to do it again. Again? You yeah. didn't tell me that. I didn't tell you? I got to do it again. Well, I, I, I didn't tell you the that. recording. Oh. <laughs> well, should we pray the recording you just lip sync? <laughs> <laughs> so would you give a warm welcome to Dr. Brashears? For those of you note takers, there's some notes on the back of the thing they give you on the way in. And uh, so just a little bit about who I am. I, I have a wife. We've been at this marriage thing for over 53 years. Which, sure, yeah, wow. Yeah, <laughs> it means I'm a really old guy. I, we have two bio kids uh, who are married and have two kids each. So I've got four bio grandkids. I've got an adopted daughter. I've got a sort of son. I, I have about a half a dozen non-legal kids. No illegal kids, but some non-legal kids. And uh, they're just people who we've become mom and dad to. Uh, and then we've got about, we're guessing probably 30 bonus kids, we call them. And uh, so they're not full-on kids. I'm not dad to them, but they've been living with us for six months, or six weeks in a row or longer. And uh, so we'd, we, we, collecting kids is a lot more fun than collecting stamps. <laughs> so, <clears throat> so that's where you come not from. Quite as easy, though. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's a little easier to, well, actually, it's not hard to collect kids. Sherry was in the middle of three, and she said, there is no way we're having three kids. No way. She hated being in the middle of three kids. She wouldn't inflict on anybody. So she said, two or four. I said, hmm. Two hands, two parents, two kids. Totally makes sense to do two, and then if you want any more, we'll go to the store and buy them. <laughs> you don't have to buy them. You just, they're wandering around the street like kittens. You bring them home. <laughs> and special shout out to those who are doing foster parenting. God bless you. There are so many throwaway kids in our society. We never did the foster form, we never did the formal foster care thing, but We've taken in a lot of kids that could be foster kids. It's a unique and special ministry and has some unique difficulties, but man, what a beautiful thing to do. That's what Jesus took us in. He took us in when we were not, uh, not good kids. We weren't tame and brought us into his family and, and helped us grow up. That's what we talk about. And we talk about Father's Day. For uh, I was talking with Kevin and I said, well, you know, I... I don't have any real Father's Day type stuff, uh, but I do have a, a thing I've done on marriage that I could rework and do up here. He said, yeah, because if you're a, a good man and learn how to be a good husband, it's a good chance you can learn also how to be a good father. And they should go in that order, of course. They don't always go in that order. So what I want to do here today is talk about God's design for marriage and just think that through, because the same patterns that work in marriage also work in many other relationships, but there's a unique relationship between a husband and a wife, and that didn't mean you have to be married to be a special guy. Was Jesus married? Don't have any Mormons in the room? Because uh, Mormons do think Jesus was married. Uh, I don't think he is. But single man, you can be fully blessed 
servant of the Lord Most High, and fulfilled as a single person. You don't have to be married to be a special servant of the Lord. But there's a unique relationship with marriage. So I want to talk about that and just look at it. So, you know, we all love weddings. Some look like this. Uh, Some look like this. You know, traditional kinds of marriage. Beautiful, I mean, lovely husband, wife. Some look a little bit different. This is a Portland wedding. Somebody told me this morning that Portland is two Starbucks short of being a real city. Uh, maybe. I'm from Portland. Yeah, I'm, I'm a Portland guy. So some weddings look like this. A little bit different. Some weddings do it like this. They gave their vows floating in free space. And they got to the bottom, and this is the couple. They're not kids. <laughs> like, go figure. There's no way I'd get Sherry to step out of a living plane. There is no way. Uh, and, you know, cakes look like this. So, a lot of different things when you think about weddings, but marriages are just as diverse as these wedding pictures I've got. Uh, they just you know, come in a lot of different things, but there's a basic design in Scripture, and that's what I look at, and it begins back at the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. God said, let us make man in our image. What do you notice about that pronoun? It's plural. Who's it referring to? God. In our image, let them. So that our, I think, is a first glimpse of what will later be revealed as Trinity. There's a lot of stuff in the first three pages of the Bible that we just the very first glimpse of that we get a full revelation as we go along. So if you just look at our, you wouldn't think that's Trinity, but that's the first hint of it. Us, our, and then them, that's humans. So there's a connection between the plurality of the Trinity and the plurality of humanity, and it comes out in what the Bible calls the image of God, and we are image of God. That means that we have the, the awesome, the amazing ability and awesome responsibility to make visible the invisible characteristics of our Lord, our triune God. And we have jobs related to that. So when I think about that, male and female is a part of that created reality. And that's where marriage comes from. So let's just look ahead a little bit further. This is uh, Genesis 1.28. And it says, God blessed them and said to them. Now, who is that? Who is that? That's the man and the woman, the male and the female. And he gives a command, and that first command is be fruitful. Now, who is it that's being fruitful? Well, it's the man and the woman. And that's not just making babies. That's raising image-bearing covenant partners that are fully blessable. So it's, 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 it's nurturing children, and it's a them thing. So when I think of marriage, the first thing I think of marriage is it is a great family. Now, marriages don't always have children, but that's the norm. And uh, they don't have to be bio kids. Uh, we've got a number of non-bio kids, uh, and then Cindy is adopted. So family, 
is a part of marriage. It's ironic today that many people get married and there's no family in their possibilities, not in their possibilities, but in their plans. But that's God's design, is normally that families would have children. But he goes on. Said to them, now, what's the command there? Rule over the rest of creation. And rule means to bring order into Satan's chaos. Who does that? Who does the ruling? That's the husband's job, right? No. <laughs> it's not just the husband's job. Whose job is it? I will ask you trick questions, get used to it. <laughs> Whose job is it? That's them. That's all of us, husbands and wives. <clears throat> so what we think about this in the second dimension of marriage is it is a great mission. And a piece of what we do in marriage is the two together in a husband and wife are, have a missional component to that marriage. And that's what I find is missing from a lot of understanding mission of marriage. Is we think of marriage is together for mutual uh, encouragement, and it is, but there's a mission for God that we're to bring order into the chaos that the serpent creates. But it doesn't stop there. Genesis 2 the Lord said, it's not good for the man to be alone. Why not? Why is it not good for a man to be alone? Because he can't find his socks. <laughs> Let's just be truthful. Let's just be truthful. Yeah. Because all humans are made for companionship. Whether it's a marriage relationship or a friend relationship, we're all made for companionship. That's why this COVID era has been so incredibly difficult because a lot of people lost their relationships, and the loneliness factor has been horrible. The traumas coming out of that, the rise in suicidality and despair, off the charts. That's why I'm so glad that Calvary Chapel South exists, where people can find community and hope in the midst of a despairing world. The Lord said, it's not good to man, so I'll make a helper. That's a good thing. Man needs a helper, right? Absolutely. So what we need there is that we need a well, it didn't get there. It should be a servant. So husbands need a servant. Hey, wife, give me some tea, right? <laughs> Stay tuned to this channel. Helper, one who does for us, a helper, one who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Who is the number one helper in Scripture? God is. Is he our servant? Eh, not exactly. But that helper... And then that is a suitable helper. And that's, if I translated it literally, we'd say according to the opposite of him, which is pretty clunky English. So it's often translated something like corresponding to or complementary or something like that. So they're alike but different. And that's the male-female. Common humanity but different as, as a man and woman. So uh, that suitable helper, <clears throat> so not servant, not servant, not servant. What should it be? Well, what I like to put there is friendship. I could put partnership, but friendship, it takes a little bit further because I think a husband and wife should be genuinely friends. They should be more than that, but there should be that relationship that just enjoys being together. Sherry and I were at a trauma workshop yesterday all day, and in the afternoon, one of the women who was presenting, uh, Cheryl Baker from Mago Day in Portland, 
amazing woman. I'd never met her before. I knew about her. And partway through her thing, she said to people, okay, I want you to pair up, and I want you to look at each other without saying anything for 90 seconds. That's surprisingly difficult to do. Because I was looking at my pretty wife for 90 seconds. That wasn't hard to do, but not kissing her for 90 seconds was tough. But just looking at that and just the delight that we could have of being together there. And when we were allowed to say something, I just said to her quietly, I said, you're still my pretty wife. And she smiled her sherry smile, which I like to see. That friendship piece. So God formed all these animals. Adam named them with God. That's the partnership. That's the mission with God. And when he was done, he gives names, but no suitable helper. Now, dogs are good, but they don't fit the suitable helper slot. You need a person to do that. And the commitment of marriage or the commitment of a deep friendship is an important part of who we are as humans. So the last section I'd put in here, uh, 2.22. The Lord God made a woman from the side of the man, taken out of the man, he brought her to the man, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she called a woman, for she's taken out of the man. And that last phrase there is so touching. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. Now, when you look at that, this is easy for Adam and Eve, because there's no sin yet. But see, this verse is not just Adam and Eve. How do we know that? Because verse 22 there. Actually, I skipped a verse there. The 24 that I skipped over there is a man will leave his mother and cleave to his wife. Adam didn't have a daddy. So this is a pattern not just for Adam and Eve, for all of us. And one of the very, 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 very cool things is when in a marriage where there is shameful stuff in my life, that I can come to Sherry and be naked before her, completely vulnerable. I can let her see my shameful stuff in the confidence, because of our marriage commitment, that she's going to see and care and help. So I can bring my shameful stuff to him, to Sherry, and not be ashamed. See, that's a pattern of a great marriage is not be ashamed of your shameful stuff because you're with somebody who loves you and cares for you in that unique marriage relationship. You know, the same kind of thing with deep friendships. But again, there's a unique thing about a marriage. So the last part of this, of course, is us. the other side of naked is, you know, being sexual. That's a good thing, too. So there's great passion. What is good sex? If I look in the TV shows, the Netflix binges, the movie videos, that sort of thing. Good sex is a intense, frequent, and diverse. It's a pleasurable recreational activity between consenting adults. In our society, both consenting and adult is squishy. And the devastation of our sexual brokenness is only enhanced by that definition. When you bring in a church and say that's what good sex is, and you say, if you're not married, don't do it, that didn't work. You see, God's design good sex is completely different. Good sex is a whole person bonding activity between a husband and a wife in order to express, confirm, and deepen their marital relationship. 
See, God made sex. He's not ashamed of it at all. It's a really good thing. I can say 53 years, it's really good. But see, the thing of it is, it's a sacrament of marriage. And when you do your sexual expression in other ways than that, you're taking something that's beautiful and blessed and using it in a non-beautiful, non-blessed way. And you take something that's so beautiful and defile it, really. Whole person bonding activity, pleasurable, between a husband and a wife to express, confirm, and deepen their marital relationship. It's a beautiful thing God gave as a gift for married couples. Jesus says the same thing in Matthew 19, quotes both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and adds on what God has joined together, let no one separate. Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 does the same kind of thing. He quotes, and he has something else. There's a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So when we think about marriage principles, first of all, marriage is not merely a legal contract. Now it is in the state of Washington, state of Oregon. There are legalities around it. That's why you have a license to be married and there are legal obligations and that sort of thing. But it's not just that. Uh, marriage is not a relationship of convenience. For many people, even marriage is, we're in it so long as love shall last. And it's a convenient thing to save money. Well, that's cohabitation. It's not marriage, really. What marriage is, is a lifelong, exclusive, covenantal relationship between a man and a woman, patterned after the Trinity, remember Genesis chapter 1, as well as Christ and his church. That's the pattern of marriage and what it's about. And that, when you do it that way, it works out. Now, some patterns of marriage. One pattern that's often taught is the command-compliant model. Uh, the husband's job is to give loving commands out of his wisdom and input, and the wife's job is to receive those to uh, support him and do what he directs in loving relationships command compliant. Often taught in the church, as you'll hear, I'm not a fan of that. A second view uh, is principles, or parties, partners with differing roles. So common humanity, but different role within the marriage relationship. And another one that's very common is equals in everything. Common humanity, to be sure, men and women, but as far as roles in the home and such, there's no difference because they emphasize the mutual submission of Ephesians 5.21. Let's look at what God says in his scripture. Two passages, Ephesians 5 and 1 Peter 3. What is the first command to the wife? What's the first command to the wife? It's the word that no woman likes. I sat this week with a young woman uh, who her mutual friend had referred down. She had a lot of questions. And she sat and we talked about uh, women's roles and leadership in the church and her trying to get that figured out. And then I moved into marriage and when I said the S word, I just saw the dark go over her face. Because from her, when she talked about submission, why should submit to their husbands in everything, I, that was a very, very hard word because she understood it to be this. Submission means do what you're told and smile. 
Now, who's the best submitter in the Bible? Jesus. Where? Not so much on the cross, although he does it there. There's a better place to see his submission. It's just before the cross. What's that? That's the garden. Yep. Mark 14. Went to a place called Gethsemane, said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. He took Peter, James, and John along with him, began to become deeply distressed and troubled. He said, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch. Going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if possibly hour might pass from him. Abba, Father, he said, everything is possible from you. Take this cup from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but what you will. That's the picture of submission. But see, it's not just the last line that's submission. Let's go back to the beginning. What's the first thing that he gives to his friends and his father? What is that? That's his, that's his feelings. Now, just for curiosity, how many of you want to feel like that? How many of you seek that as your height of emotional experience? The answer is nobody wants that feeling. This is a very negative, very difficult feeling, and he's expressing it to his friends and his father. And so what I'd suggest to you is the first step of submission is to give your feelings. And not just the good ones. Now this is not whining and that sort of thing, but it's expressing with vulnerability and openness. First step of submission is give your feelings, but he doesn't stop there. What is he doing here? He prayed and what's he doing here? He's asking for what? What does he not want to do? Doesn't want to go to the cross. He doesn't want the cup of suffering and death. Now, just out of question mark, what would have happened if the father would have said to the son, okay, son, I'll honor your request. What would have happened? We'd all be in hell. The serpent would win and it'd be awful. This is not a good request. Why did the sinless Son of God ask the Father to get out of the cross? Because he knew what was going to happen. He knew the agony. And he expressed a desire that was not through the editing of what's okay to say, but out of the agony of his soul. So the second thing is give your desires. Again, done respectfully, positively, but vulnerably and honestly. Second step of submission. And then the third step of submission is the yet not what I will. And what you're doing at that spot, it seems to me, is giving, uh, what I'd say is give your trust. See, that's the definition of submission. It's not do what you're told and smile silently. It's the active expression of your feelings including the very negative ones, vulnerability and openness, being naked and not ashamed, giving your desires, this is what I want, honestly, not manipulatively, of course, but being open about it. And then give your trust to that one. Now, there's a command on the other side, too, and they go back and forth. I never hear this being taught virtually when we talk about submission. But that's what submission is. 
It doesn't matter any difference what's in a relationship like a marriage or me with my new boss, Josh Matthews. I hired Josh six years ago, and I was his boss for five years. Now he's my boss. I believe in, you know, grow your own boss. <laughs> but see, where he was submitting to me as the center chair, now I'm submitting to him as dean. That's a good thing. But it means I tell him what I feel and what I want, but I give him my trust. I defer to his judgment in places where those differ, and I try to do it. So this is a table I put on your handout. What submission is not, it's not spineless, it's not critical, it's not self-promoting, silence, compliance, or demanding rights. It is supportive, teachable, self-giving, active involvement, and willing to be led picture of what submission is. So it's not do what you're told and smile. It's not do what you're told and smile. What are the three dimensions of submission? First one is what? Yeah, I know I'm a professor. First one is what? Give your... Second is give your... Third is give your... Yeah, okay. And that's in any relationship. So it's yield voluntarily to the leadership of another one, giving your full feeling to support actively. It's not silent compliance. Now, the other side of it. The other side of it. When I think of the husband's side, what's the command, husbands? Love how? So what that means is so for me to say to my pretty wife, hey, babe, I'll be glad to take a bullet for you. That's easy to say because it's never going to happen. I'll take a bullet for you. Yeah, I'm just totally hypothetical. Love as Christ loved the church, giving myself up. Oops, giving myself up for her. What does that mean? It means take this thing with my games and that sort of stuff, put it down, and give myself to Sherry. Give my attention and love. Now, for me, games on a phone is not an issue, but lots of other things are. See, it's giving yourself those privileges that are mine is to yield them as Christ yielded the privileges of heaven to come here and be with us. That's the picture of what a husband is doing. And what comes out of that then is the, uh, the husband's is love by giving. We'll get it going here. There it is. So love here is to promote another's good for the sake of that person. And it's by giving up my privileges and my rights for the sake of Sherry in this case. That submit is one side, but love by giving is the other side. But it didn't stop there. I, husbands love their wives as they do their own bodies, maybe even their own cars. I mean, who knows? <laughs> Loves as he loves nurturing and cherishing. So here love is different because here the love is love by cherishing. So that's the, the head relationship. Paul talks about that. He didn't tell it. Never, 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 never tells the husband, you've got to be the head in your home. He just states it as a fact. And then the command is love by giving yourself Love by nourishing and cherishing your wife. Very different kind of thing. And this just here means to, when you think about cherishing, nurture with affection, tenderness to prize highly. 
25. But he didn't stop there. He finishes up here in verse 33, Ephesians 5. One of you must also love his wife and the wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So you love as you love yourself and the husband. Wife respects, filling out the rest of this table here. You know, respect is one of those things. This is the one that will be mutual. They both are to respect the other one. This is the only one that's mutual in the list. The trouble is we have no examples of respect in our society because the American culture is incredibly disrespectful. Incredible disrespectful. The only way you have respect in our society is to earn it by being a stronger athlete or having a tougher car or whatever it is. There is no respect given in our culture, ever. We teach our kids to be defiant in our culture. If they're not defiant, we think they're not being good kids because we prize individually so highly. We teach our teenagers to disobey. It's in all our models. We have no respect built into our culture anywhere. It's crazy. In the Philippines, Sherry and I were in the Philippines three years early on, and I still, in many aspects of the Filipino culture, in the traditional Filipino culture, when a child walks into the home, he'll walk over to the father and the mother, but particularly the father, take the father's hand, put it to their head, and tapo, I, manipao. It's, it's an act of respect. That's because you're my father. We have nothing like that in American society. It should be so in marriage. And you can start here. Just to have that culture of respect given to value, honor, and esteem the other person. 1 Peter 3. Parallel passage. What's the command of the wife? Again, submit. Uh, but there's three other things here that I find helpful. If you don't believe, so you win your by the behavior when they see your purity and reverence. Purity means uniquely committed. Reverence is that respect again. And goes on, your beauty should not come from outward adornment. I mean, nice hair and do your nails and beautiful dress, that's fine. But the beauty that counts is rather the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Now, quiet here doesn't mean not talk. Quiet means peaceful. And that's a, that's a virtue that wives bring into their relationship. And the delight. So when I look at this, the beautiful spirit. And that doesn't come automatically. It requires the help of the Holy Spirit and the help of a community of women and, and men to learn how to do that because the serpent is still very much at work doing his disastrous things. Pure, reverent, gentle, quiet. But the, uh, the other side. Husbands. What's the first command of the husband? What is it? Live with. Where do good men live other than their home? Work. Good thing or bad thing? Well, it's a good thing. But you've got to live at home, your whole person. Where, where do men live? What's the pardon? TV. Sports? No, nobody would do sports, would they? <laughs> not in Seattle, yeah. yeah. Hobbies, I mean, these are, there's not in the garage, in the yard, I mean, with grandkids, yep. 
There's lots of places, but that unique relationship is to be live with whole person. Women, wives especially, have you ever had the experience that your husband is physically present and mentally absent? Like all the time, right? <laughs> whole person presence is what this is talking about, even in difficult situations. And then the second command. Now, question. Can a husband understand a wife? Can a man understand a woman? And the answer is, yes, you can, but it's not easy because we're different critters in a lot of ways. And how do you do that, that understanding, the be with and understand, and I've just got a basic technique that I do when I'm doing marriage, and I do it with Sherry, is the thing is, number one, to put my phone down, look at her, give her my full attention, whole person attention, and say various ways, how you feeling? What did that do for you? We were at the trauma conference yesterday. We went to lunch together, and I asked Sherry as we were sitting there at lunch. She does trauma groups with Amending the Soul, but she's an abuse survivor in her own home. So I know some of this stuff can be hard for us. So I just, how's it doing? She told me a couple things. Then my job is to hear her, give her my full attention, and then repeat back in my own words what she said. And at that point, what it does, it shows her I'm really listening to her, and I'm trying to understand what's going on, because if I can put it in my own words, now here's the thing. It didn't happen yesterday, but it's happened other times. I, I say, Pretty way, where would you like to go to dinner tonight? That's a feeling thing. And she says, I don't know. Okay. That means I get to choose. So I say, well, why don't we go to Salty's? No, I don't want to go there. <laughs> Wait a minute. You just said, I don't know, and now you're saying, ah. Now, that could be a fight. It's never been, but it could be. <laughs> See, the thing is, when she gives her feelings, and I express it back in my own words, her feelings are a moving target. I'm trying to figure out how she's feeling. So it's a journey we do together, and because I'm with her and understanding her, it helps her grow and figure out what's going on. That's what marriage is about. Husbands, you can do it. What's the wife's job? Submit, which means what? Give your feelings, your desires your trust which requires then uh, another thing for the husband it means to honor your wife that's the respect word that's true for that's the one that's for both is to honor respect but the last thing I didn't miss until a woman in a very abusive situation said Gary you missed the most important thing in the whole thing I said help me because I missed it it's that very last line don't give in to fear in every society, men carry more power than women. And it's easy to give in to fear and not submit. What is submission? Feelings, desires, trust. It means, okay, it's dangerous. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to give anything. And that's the, the chart. God's design for marriage. Now, this also works for friendship relationships. Same principles are involved in any relationship. But what I find is when people do this, 
that good men become good husbands and good women become good wives and they both become good parents. And on Father's Day, I'm thinking of the unique role that fathers have. And the simple sociological fact that father absent, whole, father absent homes, the rate of failure of children, both girls and boys, is so much higher. And father doesn't mean a divorce thing. It just means a father who doesn't come home and give himself to his kids and to his wife. So in that background, let's come back to this. The command compliant, mm -mm. that is not God's design. I don't know how people do it, and I've heard a number of biblical teachings, supposedly, that the husband's job is to give loving commands and the wife is to give loving, yes, I'll do what you say, even if I disagree. We got a little thing in our marriage where I look at my pretty wife and I say, Sherry, submit. <laughs> and she looks at her, that unique look and says, in your dreams, and she says, yes, dear. <laughs> See, that's not the biblical pattern. There are differing roles. I think that's divine scripture. But those roles are both roles to be learned, and I don't think it's equals in everything. I think there's a unique responsibility that comes for the husband to nurture the role of the home, just like Jesus has a unique role in relation to the life of the church. Success in marriage is a sum of small efforts focused on showing love and appreciation repeated every day. Now I think about this. Reflecting back on a lot of marriage work that I do as a pastor and the 53 years that Sherry and I have. Both my boys are in really good marriages. Uh, and I've worked with a lot of different people. Because what happens, this pattern that God gives us, I think is a beautiful pattern for marriage. I think it works. And the thing is, if you look sociologically, this biblical pattern is the highest satisfaction in marriages for marriages that follow these patterns, and far higher if Jesus is in that relationship. It's a simple sociological fact. Like God knew what he was doing when he designed, defined marriage. But what happens when it doesn't work? What happens when one spouse touches that sore spot in the other spouse? Where perhaps there's been a pattern of conflict and suddenly there's a... <laughs> and words are said that are extremely hurtful. Things are done that are very demeaning sometimes. See, that's when the challenge comes, and that's when the role of Jesus Christ comes in, because the way that works is by learning the, the possibility of forgiveness. And forgiveness comes when there is that pattern of relationship where the, the person who was offended goes gently to the other person and says, can I tell you, last night, when you did that thing you said to me, I felt incredibly demeaned. See, it's not, I can never trust you to do anything. You know, that's the contempting. But see, the convicting, this is what Jesus says, go to that person, and, and that's what you do. Specific. Last night, when you said, I felt demeaned. Can we talk about it? See, done gently, 
and not in the heat of the emotion. And the other person who's done the offense would say, I hear you saying, and they repeat what I did. And if it's done well under the power of the Holy Spirit, the offender now would say, I confess to you, I did last night say those words, and I hear you saying that it was really demeaning to you. That's confession. Now the offended person looks and says, I hear you saying, and repeats back again, that last night when you said this, that you agree that I was demeaned by your words. I receive your confession. The offender doesn't say, please forgive me. Not his role, not her role. The confession is, I did, I was wrong. The offended person doesn't say, well, of course I forgive you because you're not ready to do that yet in many cases. But you receive the confession. And then you bring it before God. It may happen in the moment. It may happen a while later. When the Holy Spirit does his work and you realize the value of this relationship and realize how much I have been forgiven. See, it's a key is how much have I been forgiven through Jesus Christ? Then on the basis of that forgiveness, even as hard to say, I want to be like Jesus. So I come to say, I, if I'm the offended person, I receive your confession and I grant you forgiveness, which means letting go my right to hurt you back. Because under justice, I have that right. But just like God fulfilled justice in a different way through the cross, we fulfill justice in a different way through the relationships by bringing it to Jesus. So as the offended person, I say, following the example of Jesus Christ, I grant you forgiveness. I let my right to hurt you back go. I let the offense go. And then the offender says, I receive your forgiveness with gratitude. Let's pray together. See, that little process of forgiveness, it's everything in a relationship. And it happens uniquely because of Jesus Christ. I'm not a super student of the religions and worldviews of the world, but I do a lot of it. Christianity is the only worldview or religion that incorporates forgiveness at the heart of it. Judaism to a degree, Christianity completely, and no other religion or worldview. You power up and make it happen. Our world is becoming increasingly a follower of the Greek gods. In the Greek god, you muster up power and you crush your enemy. And we're seeing it happen in politics. It's a religion of hate and power. There's no forgiveness. You get canceled. And we're seeing the impact of that in the society. And that's where in this pattern of marriage and fathers, you have a unique role in this place. Because many times fathers see themselves at the top of a pyramid you're the person who should be the most forgiving person ever because you're the one who fills the Jesus role in the relationship. And I call you fathers to learn the lessons of marriage and forgiveness. Wives, I call you to hear the message of being wifely and also doing forgiveness and working toward that by the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray together.
Thank you, Father, that you love us enough to be with us and come to us even when we've been so self-serving, so involved with the serpent and his evil ways. Thank you, Jesus, for leaving all the privileges of heaven to come and live in the worst of this world, to even go to a cross to bring us forgiveness by your crucifixion. But more than that, to be raised in newness of life, to bring that life into this place of death and despair, exalted over all the hostile powers, you poured out the Holy Spirit on us. Holy Spirit, grant us the ability to see where we're wrong and receive your help and forgiveness, and we're wrong to grant that privilege to others. Guide in our lives, empower, and I pray specifically for fathers here today as you do that and for those who will be. Will you grant dads that are good dads? I pray in Jesus' name.